Welcome to the Army Medical Department Center of History and Heritage podcast series. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this podcast are not necessarily the views of the Army or the Army Medical Department Center of History and Heritage. The goal of this podcast is to share the story of Army medicine with soldiers, military, civilians, teachers, researchers, and the general public. Well, thank you. Uh, today, on the 16th of March, 2017, we are in the Army Medical Department Museum for the presentation, Life and Work of Army Nurses in World War I. And I am the current Army Nurse Corps historian. And I would like to thank you all for inviting me to speak today. And also in the back is Anne Marie Berglund. You've seen her um, in her 1917 nurse's outfit and then I would be the 2017 nurse's outfit. And um, I don't know, why don't you come on up and we can do a couple of contrasts here. I'm trying to stay close enough to the microphone that people can hear me. Um, it's just interesting when you can weave together society's expectations and your skill set and technology and what do you do in different conflicts with the tools you're given. So Anne-Marie has an authentic World War I Army Nurse Corps cape on, which would be the blue wool and then it has a red lining. And she has the uh, Red Cross convalescent bag, which is real. And she has a um, translation book so you can study how to speak French on the ship over to France during World War I. So um, she purposely is the living model of World War I Army nursing or Red Cross nursing, as it could be. Uh, you could be a Red Cross nurse and not in the Army, but if you're in the Army, you are most definitely a Red Cross nurse. So I will throw that in. And she has her disposable uh, collar, and I mean detachable, and her detachable cuffs. Um, we were always to wear white uniforms, red lipstick, and make the fighting man feel safe. And you cannot do that when you enter a war that's been in progress for three years already. Um, and so those in France, when they could, were issued gray dresses, which you'll hear about. A Red Cross, always blue. Um, we're just happy to have clothes that are warm and covering us. But your cuffs and collars were to remain white, even though the rest. To be washed or boiled and ready to go. Yes, and, and stocked. So Anne-Marie is uh, on the board of the San Antonio Living History Association, and she gives <coughs> tours in our museum also. So thank you for the teamwork for Preservation Fort Sam and the AMED Museum and Selha. And she's here for afterwards if you want to ask her more <laughs> questions and what life was like in the Great War in, in France. And you have that delightful French accent to yes. make it even thank more you. real. <laughs> I'm, I'm grateful that I can wear pants and decent kind of boots and yes, so yay for 2017. So I must say that the opinions expressed in this presentation are mine. They are not the Department of Defense and they do not necessarily reflect official Army positions and they do not supersede information in official Army publications. So what we're going to do today is go through slides that are photos of actual artifacts in the museum, photos of nurses of the time, and you are certainly welcome to come back and take your time in our exhibit area. 
So we have role of the nurses in the 1900s, and to get us in the right mindset for this time period, here are your principal causes of death at the time, and you see that life expectancy is 40 years. So once we shift back that far, the next slide will show you nursing care responsibilities. What nurses could do at that time, they were housekeepers, uh, they could observe uh, effects of diets and medications, and there were a lot of baths they could give. And I wanted to list some for you, because they're rather fascinating. There was the hot air bath, the sheet bath, the gelatin bath, the graduated bath, the vapor bath, the mud bath, narcotic bath, sand bath, mustard bath, sea bath. So lots of baths to learn. Uh, you see that they could insert catheters that was most likely females helping females. That was a society expectation. Uh, you didn't necessarily uh, touch or work with men, especially when your skill set is washing, uh, unless you are related or married to them. Although if you were uh, the nurse or your sister as the way of being a nun, then at your selfless service you could be doing those kinds of activities. So the next slide shows, as much as Anne-Marie and I in our uniforms today, the differences of 1917 and 2017. So in the beginning, the Army Nurse Corps is established in 1901, and it's a female-only corps by law until 1955. So the nurses at this time, they are not enlisted, they're not commissioned, they're not warrant officers. They have acting rank, sort of paramilitary. They are called Miss or Nurse. And there are few specialties, uh, no fault of anyone. This is throughout civilian nursing as well. Uh, they are not expected to be at the front. There is no weapons training, no combat training. And the title of our corps is Nurse Corps parentheses female which is hard to say, Nurse Corps parentheses female. It's 1918 that we become the Army Nurse Corps. So now, today, you're a soldier first because you have to be able to put your own gas mask on. No one's gonna help you with that. Um, you have to be able to defend yourself and your patients without going overboard. And then their third role, you are a nurse. We now have 12 different specialties and we're expected to do many things that no one dreamed about in 1917. On the next slide, you'll see when we start World War I, recruiting at this time is outsourced to the Red Cross. We have 403 nurses on active duty, which is not enough for a world war, and 170 of those were in the reserves. The Red Cross, however, in their nursing service reserves has 8,000 nurses. And the Army's guide for estimating how many nurses you need for war had remained unchanged since the Revolutionary War, you get one nurse for every 10 hospital beds, whether you need it or not. And the Army mandated that the nurses serve for the duration of the emergency, which of course is an undetermined amount of time. And on this slide you see our Army Nurse Corps pin all squished together. The A, the N, and the C is all squished and then you'll see the Red Cross uh, pin also. And interestingly, by the end of the war, a third of our graduate nurses in the U.S. will have served at the Army Nurse Corps. Uh, next, we'll see recruiting posters. There is nothing subtle about recruiting nurses. And the next photo, same uh, poster, patriotic fervor is sweeping the country and nurses are volunteering in droves. The next photo will be examples of mobilizing industry and public <coughs> opinion through posters, and here you see the enemy is evil and must be stopped. 
and industry and technology is evolving and this war is going to be the first time that there is large use of tanks and submarines. On the next slide you'll see posters and newspaper articles. Uh, by the time we enter in April of 1917, the Great War, our country has laws passed that um, it is a jailing offense to criticize our government. And different folks have mentioned this in other Preservation Fort Sam Houston uh, presentations too. And all things German were made suspicious. German language teaching stopped, German newspapers were suspended, and names were changed. So you did not eat sauerkraut, you ate Liberty cabbage. You did not eat hamburger, you ate Salisbury steak, and you certainly did not eat frankfurters, you ate hot dogs. So that was an example. The next photo, this is a parade of nurses in Chicago in 1918. They are trying to encourage nurses to volunteer. Uh, we have yet to have a draft for nurses, uh, being that we're a female corps for females, I should make that more clear, although it was attempted in World War II in Vietnam. Um, but we're back in World War I here, so it took a lot of effort to coordinate a parade, uh, coordinate a parade like this. So on the next slide you'll see what did it take to be an army nurse uh, before World War I and then as the war is going on, uh, what happens to these requirements? And it may look like they got loosened a little. Uh, you'll see in the beginning you had to be between age 25 and 35 and as the need arises we can expand that rather like an accordion to uh, 21 to 45. Originally, you could not be married and you were a U.S. citizen. Eventually, you can be the wife of an ally. And if you were married, you stayed stateside, where we also need Army nurses. And they still were very much wanting graduate nurses, but they didn't necessarily need to be registered. And then height and weight was sort of just tossed to the side. That'd be sort of nice to do nowadays, too, I think. And then this next slide, you'll see Miss Dunlop. She's the director of nurses at Pennsylvania Hospital. She was unanimously selected to be in charge of base hospital number 10. And you can see that she is clearly over the age of 35, but her skill set is impressive. She was in charge of nurses of the American Ambulance uh, Service in France before we officially joined in 1917. So she has wartime experience that the Army could not have given her in any other way. So she has experienced in many ways, and so they were very lucky at base hospital number 10 to have her. And you'll see her in her off-duty uniform on the one side, and then as they're going overseas um, in her civilian dress there. So what would you have been told to pack as an Army nurse? The next slide shows you this list. And the government is going to provide these women lectures, vaccinations like smallpox, shots like typhoid, and they give them lots of forms to fill out, but they do not provide uniforms. So the Red Cross is going to have to give the nurses clothes for the war, and it took till 1922 to repay the Red Cross for all the uniforms and capes that were needed. So if you were a nurse, this is the kind of thing you would have packed, and they tell you that to keep in mind, whatever you bring, you have to carry yourself. This uh, was a time of maybe chivalry would be the word, but when it comes to war, you're carrying your own whatever it is, trunk, I think would be a good word. So you'll see on here that you get 12 detachable collars and cuffs and two cufflinks, just like Anne Marie is, is wearing, because you're gonna have to have some that are being washed or soaked while you're having others. So 
What did the nurses think of all this? Well, they thought it was far too much red tape. So on the next slide, you'll see they had to fill out paperwork, have photos taken, fingerprints taken, and they felt this was preventing them from traveling overseas to aid in the war effort. And perhaps some things never change. So I think any conflict, we might feel uh, that there was too much red tape. On the next slide, you'll see some artifacts from our museum. You'll see the identification disks, which we now would refer to as dog tags. And names, ranks, and units were hand-stamped into the aluminum. They came in a set of two, and you usually wore them around the neck using a cord. And then while waiting to deploy, some Army nurses were able to study uh, little books that were meant to fit and tuck away on French grammar. On the next slide, you'll see Army and Red Cross nurses doing physical training in their white uniforms during World War I. And where these exercises in uniforms change over time, physical fitness and stamina continue to be job requirements for Army nurses. In the next slide, you will see some training prior to deploying. These nurses are in white dresses because they're in California. And they are learning how to deal with a gas chamber. And you will see they made um, realistic trenches. They do, however, have white dresses, white hose, and, and white shoes. And they have makeshift hair coverings because uh, there was no reason not to have long hair. And the straps of this style of gas mask really uh, got twisted up. So they made less hair pulling and interference by making their own covers for their hair. And in the American Expeditionary Forces, over 31% of all casualties were due to gas exposure and the majority of those were from mustard gas. And so that was a serious threat to soldiers facing it in the field. They also had chlorine and phosgene, and the nurses have different treatments for different kinds of gas. So to show more training, I don't know how often nurses on the next slide carried litters, but they at least took a photo of them um, carrying a litter. But you'll see now they're with the gray uniform that was more practical for overseas. And one of the nurses wrote to her, her parents that she had sore arms. She said, uh, it's my third and last dose of the typhoid, and it won't take on me. They said, if it doesn't take this time, I don't have to do it again. I must be immune to it. My arm has been swollen up and hard as a rock down to my elbow, and I feel sick all over. And she says if she loses her immunity papers, which we would know as shot records, she'd have to have the treatment all over again. Uh, the next slide shows African-American nurses. And before the war, no African-American nurses had ever served in the Army Nurse Corps. And then after our armistice is signed in November of 18 and the pandemic flu hits, 18 African-American nurses are employed stateside uh, to help with the flu. And then after August of 1919, there was a reduction in force, and they are released from the service. And then officially in 1941, they are allowed to enter the Army permanently. So I thought that was of interest for our history. We also, World War I, had Army civilian contract nurses. And I didn't realize that we did that back then. Um, but they were also needed to supplement shortages, especially during the 1918 flu epidemic. So on the next slide, you will see the uniforms, which uniforms are meant so you can easily identify who the person is and who they serve with and perhaps which branch they belong to. And Army nurses during this war 
had to have on-duty and off-duty uniforms. And the sudden increased demand on olive drab material needed for fighting soldiers meant that these nurses were now going to have a blue outdoor uniform because blue was a ready available fabric for them. And the Red Cross uh, got these uniforms together for them. They had a heavy blue overcoat. They had a wide, bride, wide brimmed hat, straw for summer, felt for winter. And then they would pin their US and their Army Nurse Corps pins on the collars of their jackets and coats. And this is a photo of Elizabeth Leanhouts. She's taken this photo in New York City before she sails for France. She's with Base Hospital 22 out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. She is 35 years old. She's been a nurse for nine years. And she is correctly wearing her insignia. And her brother is going with her as an orderly in the same hospital. In the next photo is Agnes McFarland. She is a graduate of Westchester Hospital in Pennsylvania, and she served with Base Hospital Number 10. This is not an official Army photo because she has made an adapted neck covering and an adaptive hat, which is very important to stay warm and healthy. And what's interesting is Julia Stimson, who was the director of the nursing service of the American Expeditionary Forces, also positioned of chief nurse of the American Red Cross in France, which is very handy when you're in charge of Red Cross and Army nurses. You can move them wherever you need them without having to ask a billion people. Anyway, she published a letter in 1918 listing the elements of a proper uniform, so you know someone must not have been doing it properly or she would not have had to do that. And she delineates that you are not going to open the collar lower than one button below the neck, and nurses cannot add items, collars, cuffs, spats, furs, flowers, jewelry, walking sticks, veils, or hand purses. So I never really thought of wearing a veil, but now I might want to do that. <laughs> so, and in 1918, in the summer, the War Department gives authority that nurses can wear wound and service chevrons, the same as officers and enlisted men. So you'll see in some pictures where they have those chevrons. This is um, our World War I exhibit here in the museum. And this dress was worn by nurse Cora Alderton. She was with base hospital number 51. And that hospital uh, treated patients directly from the front. And at the end, they treated more than 12,505 patients. And a nurse in base hospital number one had this quote that she wrote home. Many of the nurses appeared for the first time in their war uniforms nun-like in their gray and white simplicity, clown-like after the first washing with strips of purplish gray fading into sickly white. So uniforms can be a problem along the way. The cape in the case here is um, Army nurse Esther Kemp. She was assigned to Walter Reed General Hospital in Washington, DC. And the shoes are from Army nurse Gertrude Hartman during her World War I service. And she served with base hospital number 72. And they stay in France November of 18 until April of 19. In the next slide, you will see Army nurse Gertrude Hartman's navy blue fur hat and the rose grain ribbon that she would have worn with her outdoor uniform. And the trench art on the Brody helmet is from Johns Hopkins University graduate nurse Vashti Bartlett. And from March of 1915 to January of 16, so before the US enters 
this conflict. She serves with the American Red Cross in France and Belgium. And she's fluent in French. And then from March of 17 to August of 1918, she is in the Department of Nursing Bureau of Field Nursing Service Red Cross Headquarters in Washington, D.C. And in August of 18, she goes back to France to serve with Army Nurse Corps. She's chief nurse of base hospital number 71. And then she's assigned to Siberia, to the Siberian Expeditionary Forces to help stop a hantavirus. So where we think we're really something with Ebola and our big spacesuits, we're sending um, Vashti Bartlett off to Siberia to, to handle hantaviruses in uh, 1919. So how to remain humble as an army nurse, I guess. Uh, the next photo is a waist, which is a shirt, but that was their name for it, was a waist. It's a blue silk blouse, and that would have been with the outdoor duty uniform. This was worn by Hazel Bell Flint, and she was with base hospital number 52. And she wrote about uh, a time here that her suitcase was still at the railroad station. She wasn't sure what she was going to wear. She had borrowed a uniform. She has 86 patients on her ward, and there are very poor lights, and she uses a candle on her night shift. Army nurses also had boodle bags. I didn't know what a boodle bag was, but they are purses that you suspend from your waist underneath your skirt, and you can keep things in there that no one can take from you. Uh, easily at any rate. So if you ever hear about a boodle bag, you never know, you could be playing Trivial Pursuit. That would be <laughs> Army Nursing, World War I. Uh, next picture, you'll see what our aid men, we didn't have the term medic yet, but what they would have been outfitted with because it's interesting to know what tools of the trade you have. Uh, this is on display in our exhibits here. This would be gauze, two gauze bandages wrapped in paper with safety pins. So we've come a long way of having dressings that are nice and compact with tails that are notched that you can roll and tie and not worry about your safety pins. But this is how the aid men were trained. And the next slide you see they would have had 10 pouches. They would have had two of those paper with gauze and safety pins in each pouch. And you'll see the Red Cross brassard the armband. On the next slide, this is a souvenir belt made by patients at base hospital number 10 for Army nurse Imogene Lloyd. It's a British waist belt. They covered it in the tartan of the Gordon Highlanders. And the attached insignia are buttons, cap badges, and ranks from their many regiments. And her unit cared for British troops. And the one that is most interesting on this belt for insignia is third from the end. And that's the enlarged one on this slide. Uh, that is the badge of the Royal Tank Corps. And the big letters say tank. But when I first saw this, I thought it was some kind of a boat or a ship. And it's actually a tank. This would have been the war that the tank really comes into play. On the next slide, it's a photo of Red Cross workers assembling surgical dressings in France in 1918. There are many accounts of nurses writing that they needed a constant supply of dressings. They had to, if they could, rewash and re-roll lots and lots of dressings. So um, when you had rooms of people that could help you do this, it was greatly appreciated. The next slide, you'll see our types of ambulances at this time. Keep in mind, you'd have cobblestone roads and hard tires. This is not a gentle ride. You had mules, you had the Model T ambulances, and you're competing for space on crowded roads. Uh, patients may not make it to an operating room in this war for 50 to 60 hours. So there are complications that can happen during that time. 
and you just could not move patients quickly. On the next slide, you'll see a very nice photograph, although there's not much space for en route care. And the next slide, you'll see a real life muddy road, and you'll see how folks perhaps tried to stay even in their vehicles uh, loaded as patients. Next slide, one of the things nurses had to take care of was critters the soldiers brought back from the line. So they are delousing bedding and clothes here in different fashions. And the, the large piece of equipment on the right, that's a German prisoner of war, and he is processing bedding in a large steam sterilizer to get rid of lice and other kind of critters. The next slide, which is fascinating to me as an operating room nurse needing autoclaves, stainless steel, and steam, uh, this would be your mobile hospital. It had uh, two trucks. One had the built-in sterilizer and one had a built-in portable x-ray machine. And everything we're using is coming from the French and so everything is written in French. So we had to translate manuals and supply tables and this would be your sterilizing vehicle if you were with the mobile hospital. And the next slide is what it looked like inside with the equipment that you would have run and the water needs you would have had in order to, now this would have been sterilizing surgical instruments. This is not delousing. We don't do the same thing. Like we do not process food dishes either um, in our autoclaves. The next slide is really pretty clever. It's a heating chamber for shock cases. And this is still, of course, World War I, so they don't have the physiology we know of today about shock and treatment. But they did know the warmer the person was, uh, the better it was for blood clotting. And they realized that they could elevate feet to keep blood around the heart and the head. And so what they did is they had this chamber, which you see on the one side, the wooden chamber, and that would fit over the patient on their bed, and they would blanket, put blankets draped over the top, and they would heat with alcohol or kerosene lamps and candles to keep the patient warm. So it's interesting that that started way back then. Today we've got all kinds of commercial devices that plug into the wall and keep you nice and warm. So if you are going on your oceanic journey, you've now completed your training, you've finished your red tape, you've taken your oath of allegiance to the United States, you've packed your trunk. So now here you are as a group. And these gals you see have the number 10 on their uniform because they're in base hospital number 10. They're on the SS St. Paul and they're heading to France. And military regulations forbid army nurses from saying where their destinations were in Great Britain or France when they wrote letters home. Diaries were also forbidden and any outgoing mail was censored. And then you'll hear me refer to letters home and diaries. But at any rate, you were not supposed to give away uh, where you were, your location. Uh, the next photo you see all kinds of humanity fitting onto a ship. Um, on board ship, the nurses lived under a constant threat of attack by German submarines. And so to lessen that risk, all ships sailed under complete blackouts. So after dark, deck lights were not turned on, smoking was prohibited, and the portholes had to be closed before you lit any lights in the cabins. Ships took eight to 10 days to cross to England and France. Some were converted freighters. Convoys could consist of 14 vessels. And nurses were put into crowded quarters, two to five to a room, and would like to have spent most of their waking hours on deck. 
The next photo is another shot of nurses on a ship. And Colonel Florence Abby Blanchfield, who is later Chief of the Army Nurse Corps in World War II, but at the moment she is a nurse with no rank in World War I, uh, she's with the American Expeditionary Forces here. And she describes that when she traveled to France, all nurses were required to sleep in all wool swimsuits that had feet in them because if they were to be sunk by torpedoes, they would survive the frigid waters longer in a wool suit with feet. But you were not to walk around in this and have the men see you like that. You would have to look like Anne Marie. No wool suit with feet. Nurse Elizabeth Lewis wrote about Red Cross and Army issuing life-saving devices called diving suits, and she was told that she would keep warm and dry for 48 hours if she was to float in the ocean. Nurse Elizabeth Weaver said they had unsinkable suits worn for any length of time in the coldest of water. There was lead in the bottom of the feet, so you'd keep upright, and they put cork in the chest so you would be buoyant and you had a whistle so someone would really hear you in the large ocean floating about indefinitely uh, waiting to be rescued. So next slide, you'll see how the hospitals uh, were organized to deploy forward. Uh, we took an idea of taking 50 well-established civilian university hospitals that were across the nation that could go as a unit that already knew each other, that knew how to do things together, and off to war you'll go. And the Red Cross purchased and stored equipment. The Red Cross enrolled the docs, the nurses, the enlisted men. And then the idea was, once you go to war, everything is turned over to the Army which may or may not happen, but there's still a happy ending. And then the next slide will show you medical support by military echelon, because the Army is trying to push care as forward as they can, because they can't evacuate with mules and Model Ts like we can today. So that is just showing you how many folks you're to be taking care of with what kind of trained person. And the next slide you'll see uh, zone of the Army's hospitals where you've got field hospitals, mobile, and evacuation. And your field hospital was the first place for significant medical treatment, but there would be no nurses there. Those slides are not coming up. Oh, well there's the field hospital. Did you see that's the right one? Yeah. Yeah, the field hospital is the first place that you would get your um, medical treatment. You just wouldn't have nurses there. And then you'll see you go to the mobile hospital and then the evacuation hospital. Next, you've got the role of the chief nurse. And chief nurses were very important because they oversaw the quality of patient care given by the nursing staff. And they also had to advocate for their nurses' well-being. Colonel Florence Abby Blanchfield, again, a nurse now with no rank in World War I, was chief nurse of Camp Hospital 15 in Northern Brittany. She was one of 28 nurses tending to 15,000 patients. And her quote was, keeping up morale was as big a job as professional duties. Uh, this particular photo, you see nurse Julia Stimson on the right. She's chief nurse of base hospital 21 at this time. And sitting next to her is nurse Taylor and they're waiting for their evening report. In the next slide, you'll see Nurse Julia Stimson, still with no rank, but she is standing in formation with officers in France. And this is a significant photo because she is being recognized for her contributions as a chief nurse and on being on par with these, these uh, male officers 
which was quite the foreign thought for that year. And next you'll see staff nurses working conditions. And here we've got um, the nurse who is washing out the eyes of a patient who has run into gas. And the diary accounts, which we're not supposed to have diaries, but the diary accounts detailed that the enlisted men grew to appreciate and follow the instructions of the women. In the beginning, the enlisted men would only follow uh, orders of the doctors. So the nurses would have to find a doctor to tell the enlisted men what to do. They were not going to get instruction from females. So um, over time, if when the women exhibited stamina, creative problem solving, and a sense of humor while suffering similar deprivations of war, then everybody got along. So it's interesting that uh, how things evolve. And in France, again, at this time, all water has to be boiled before you can drink it. Uh, there's not a lot of hot water for laundry, and they had fixed hours that you could do those types of things. And now the operating room can accommodate four teams at once, and there might be one nurse serving four tables of instruments, which is sort of interesting and difficult to do, um, even if their instruments aren't as complicated as ours are today. The next photo is a badly wounded soldier cared for by the Johns Hopkins unit. This is in France. And by 14 April of 1918, the Surgeon General issues a circular letter stating in no uncertain terms that the head nurse was second in authority only to the ward surgeon. And they repeated in quotes, the head nurse is in charge. Responsibilities were shared with the ward master, but the nurse had full responsibility of ward management. So it better defined what a nurse could do. It did not give them any more status or any more pay, but it made life a whole lot easier in patient care. Uh, the next uh, photo, this is Ward O, the fracture ward, base hospital number 115th. This is in France. In this particular hospital, they took 80 86 different hotels and they used them as hospitals. Uh, not all of the 86 were hospital related, some would have been supply storage, but one of these hotels was nine stories high and set up with over 1,600 beds. And that was later increased to over 2,900 beds. And what you see, because it's a fracture ward, they have to construct these traction frames so that they can suspend the limbs so they don't shrink or contract. So you're making fracture uh, frames for beds for upwards of 3,000 patients in a nine-story hotel that probably does not have a working elevator if you need to move them up and down from the OR and back to wherever. So this is the kind of work that these nurses would have seen. Um, the planning factor for base hospitals, which has 500 beds, was 46 nurses. Uh, many times, nurses had at least 50 or more patients to themselves. They also could have two to three corpsmen, and if you were an active convalescent patient, you were also put to work. Your shortest day was 12 hours. They would call a mass casualty event, which we call a mass cal, patient drives. And when they had a patient drive, then that might be 18-hour days. Next photo, more traction wards. This happens to be base hospital number 21. And they describe this as looking like a carpenter shop. They've got um, 10 beds under wooden canopies where their shattered legs of our blown to pieces men are fastened. When a leg is broken in half in a dozen places, 
and they are infected besides. It's a trick of carpentry and mechanics to make them comfortable, put on extensions so the legs won't contract and shrink while they're healing, and make it possible to irrigate the wounds. The next photo, fracture ward. Now this is base hospital number 41. We're in Paris, France. And in the very, very back of that long tunnel of patients is the nurse with the dressing cart. So if you can imagine yourself giving care to this number of patients with your dressings that you hope the Red Cross is providing so you don't have to wash the yucky ones on your time off to re-roll. This is the volume of patients they saw. Uh, the next slide, this is going to be stateside. This is debarkation hospital number two in Fox Hills, New York City, also known as General Hospital number 41. And during any war, it's important to remember the contributions of Army nurses serving stateside. Sometimes we overlook these contributions. Uh, but here, in the center of the photo, is nurse Eleanor Baylor, and she's with a patient, and they happen to share the same birthday. So they had an impromptu birthday celebration and someone took a photo. So stateside, they were busy with their patients also. Next, you'll see camp hospitals in the United States. And by this time, the Army was well versed that you needed camps that were designed so that you had a direct positive effect on the health of soldiers. And so that we are now tracking diseases in camps. We're looking at disease rates against those of the civilian community in previous conflicts, but you'll see how we still have to pack quite a few bodies into a space. So we've got the theory and now we just have to hope we can make that work. Your next slide will show the outside view of nurses' quarters at Camp Park, Pike, Arkansas. So contrasting to today, I don't know how many people would ride their horses right up to the outside of the nurses' quarters. Next slide, general hospitals. These are going to be large. They have a regional role. They take care of complicated and unusual cases. They're pretty academic because they study diseases and cases no one else is going to see, and they also train junior physicians. So this is Hotel Cape May. It was built in 1908. It had been a 350-room motel, but the Army will lease it and turn it into general hospital number 11. In the next slide, we have example of a base hospital. These are large overseas. They are located far from the battlefield. They're going to provide definitive treatment. They're highly specialized, usually in excess of 500 beds, and many would go to 1,000 once the war began. The next picture you'll see is Ward A. This is Base Hospital 101, and it's used for infected ears in France. And today, Mastoidectomies are not common, as they were in World War I, because today we have antibiotics to treat ear infections, but we don't have antibiotics till 1943, and we're still in 1917. And so if you had an ear infection, that very well could make an abscess and travel into your brain, into your skull. It can cause you to be deaf, dizzy. It can damage your facial nerves. It can cause facial paralysis and lots of problems. So these types of cases were quite serious. And at this time, contagious buildings are going to be designed for meningitis, chickenpox, scarlet fever, diphtheria, measles, and these type of ear infections. So if you were a nurse working with these types of patients, you too will be quarantined and isolated, but they still try to get you days off when possible. They don't want you infecting anyone. Our next slide is base hospital. 
101. We're back in France, and you will see that they have a Victrola record player in front of the photo, not unlike the music you heard walking in today. Next slide is base hospital number 52 in France. This is their operating room, and they have three tables running simultaneously. They are putting dressings on patients who have just had legs and arms amputated. This is December 14th of 1918. Next slide is an American Red Cross evacuation hospital in France. And again, you'll note the number of patients and see the types of injuries of those patients lined up. And next we've got hospital trains. So trains evacuated patients to the next level of care. They were called the house on wheels. There were quarters for the staff. They had a rolling kitchen and a number of cars fitted out as wards and their bunks could be two or three deep along the sides. Some were fitting about 360 beds. If you gave up your staff beds, you could expand to perhaps 396. Uh, sometimes the railways got congested. Patients could stay on a train two to three days before reaching that next level of care, probably a base hospital. And the slide on the right side shows that if needed, they could do surgeries on the train. I don't know how many times that happened, but they had that capability. The next slide, you've got uh, treatment that differs basing on different injuries and with the different gases, they had different treatments. This is a specialty team and this one is taken in uh, this was the 89th Division patients being triaged in early August. And so you see the nurse uh, in the picture with her hat and her apron um, sorting out folks here to see what kind of treatments they'd be needing. Uh, next, to show you living conditions, um, this slide shows a stove used by nurses with the British Expeditionary Forces in France and you'll see that they had coal for heat and they had a kerosene lamp for light. Next slide would be nurses quarters back at Camp Pike, Arkansas. And then the next slide is an unknown location but way in the back you see they have a piano. So life is pretty good in that nurses quarters. Here you'll see a photo of a nurse working in an American Red Cross evacuation hospital in France. Environmental and logistical factors could make life difficult for nurses. Um, lighting was difficult to maintain for work or recreation, especially if you had enforced blackout uh, periods. The next slide, seeing more of the living conditions, you'll see that um, the washboard there came with a handwritten note and this was from nurse Abby Johnson, base hospital number 60. She says the little washboard was used to keep our clothes clean in the American Expeditionary Forces, also as a backboard, very useful in the trucks when they were moving. And then you'll see the field conditions where the nurses would be doing their own laundry. And because they had certain times that you could have hot water, and whatever you wanted to do with that, if it was showers or washing your clothes. They did have some nurses that would report out sick for having chillblains and other things related to cold water, and then they would go back to work again. The next slide is Red Cross nurses prior to receiving Army Nurse Corps uniforms getting water in front of their base hospital number 21. This had formerly been stables for a racetrack in France. 
These nurses now are resting at the American Red Cross Nurses Club in London, England. They're on the balcony overlooking the gardens of Buckingham Palace. This is 1918. And on the right, they are relaxing in the conservatory. And on the left, they're looking at the gardens. And this time, they have their straw hats on. That's authorized for summer wear. And nurses were able to travel if they had that opportunity um, on off-duty time. And some either even could be granted leave several consecutive days at a time. Uh, the next photo I thought was fun. It's a cast of nurses and officers and enlisted men who put on a play called Democracy Victorious at Base Hospital Number 101 in France, July the 4th, 1918. And then I wanted to share with you some documented acts of valor. Uh, women were not supposed to be up at the front. And as time goes on and we have specialty teams where the nurses do go further front, we end up with different acts of valor. So the Distinguished Service Cross was awarded to three Army nurses and 25 received the Distinguished Service Medal. On the next slide, you'll see Miss McDonald. She's on the left. She was in evacuation hospital number two. She's told to move more forward on the battlefield as a member of a small surgical team to augment the British number 61 casualty clearing station. And that was in July of 1917. And on the night of August 17, she's awakened by bombs. She's reaching for her tin hat, her Brody helmet, and she is struck by shrapnel in the right eye and cheek. Her tent mate, Miss Helen McClelland, who is on the right, began to care for her. And Miss McDonald is put on a stretcher, taken to the operating tent, and later transferred to the ophthalmic center. And this is where all this type of care would have handled itself within the theater. So after she recovers, and she lost her entire right eye, she returns to duty and becomes chief nurse of evacuation hospital number two until January of 1919, so for about nine months. So Miss McDonald is the first woman in the United States to be awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, which is the nation's second highest decoration for valor, and additionally awarded the Purple Heart for her duty performance in the war. And then her tent mate there is awarded the Dis Distinguished Service uh, Cross for her actions that day. Uh, the next slide on the left in the hat, 25-year-old Lenny LaCrone. And on the other photo is her good buddy, Irene Robar. They were assigned to shock team number 134. And they augmented field hospital number 127. They are both awarded the Citation Star, which is the predecessor of the Silver Star, for gallantry in action during an artillery barrage, July 28, 1918. And the shock teams were specially trained physicians and nurses and enlisted men. And they used advanced things such as warming therapies and intravenous fluids. So the next slide you see Miss Lily LaCrone's Silver Star citation. And what is fun, for me anyway, is you'll see they had to cross off his valor and write her and award her instead of him because I guess they thought it might not happen again, so why make a a female citation. And it's her daughter who receives the Silver Star then in July of 2007 when this is all converted and our core chief at the time presents that at the Women in Military Service for America Memorial. So now we're going to have problems getting the nurses home because they don't have a status and without a status anybody can bump you. 
Um, people that were drafted certainly are going to go home before those that volunteered, the nurses volunteered. You still have um, all kinds of, of folks that will bump you. So at one point we still had 7,000 nurses over um, in France and England and Julia Stimson was trying to figure out how to get them home. So I wanted to show you a photo of what this might have looked like. There were two camps. This is Camp Le Ball and this is where uh, some of these folks would spend um, all kinds of time waiting to come home. So at this location the Army used four very large hotels uh, to house the nurses and they did not have heat uh, but otherwise they were um, fine, said the nurses, and they were at the mercy of the officer in charge of filling whatever ship would happen to come in. Um, other women were chosen, the reconstruction aides, which we now call physical therapists, and the war brides often took precedence over the nurses. So the next slide is a photo of the other camp, Camp, um, I'm going to say Vaness, I don't know if I say that uh, properly. Um, but the, the nurses knew they had joined for the duration of the emergency. They just thought the emergency was over, but the Army said, well, now they thought they were obligated for three years of service. So while they were waiting to come home, uh, they were put to use doing things that perhaps the enlisted had been doing that had been drafted and now could be returned home. So they do additional cleaning and, and things that perhaps they didn't go to school for until they get a ride home. So what is the impact of World War I today? On the next slide you will see um, Julia Stimson again. And the good news is with the Army Reorganization Act of June 4th of 1920, Army nurses get relative rank. So now if you are the superintendent or chief of the Corps, you can have relative rank of major. The assistant superintendents, the directors and assistant directors can have relative rank of captain and the chief nurses can have a relative rank of second lieutenant. So the new superintendent of the Army Nurse Corps, Julia Stimson, who previously was mentioned for the AEF and the Red Cross, is the first woman to be promoted to the rank of major in the United States military and she's going to be superintendent of the Corps from 1919 to 1937. And the full legal rank of officers for Army Nurse Corps and the Navy Nurse Corps will come about with the Army-Navy Nurses Act of 1947. So what else did World War, do for, uh, World War I do for the nurses? Uh, they were able to write airway, air raid protocols, which they'd never been asked to do before. They wrote about how to sandbag tents and huts, uh, special instructions what to do. They were to lower the helpless patient's beds to the floor by folding the legs of the cot under. They were also supposed to run to trenches and they always kept one nurse back if the patients were so tied up to the frames that they could not lower the beds. They also could work with the patient drives or mass cals, which really was not experienced before that time in the United States. They had their improvised warming devices, and as in any conflict, the nurse's scope of practice would grow larger. Now that happens in all of our nation's wars. So World War I cements the role of specialty nursing, the nurse anesthetist, the operating room, the hospital trains, shock nursing, and the psych nurses. Uh, this grew in an intense fashion, 
and they created a special place for themselves within the Army and the Army Nurse Corps. And this is an artifact we have stuck in the wall as you walk out of our glass hallway in between Korea and Vietnam. These plaques, these World War I memorial tablets, were made by the, our medical units. They wanted never to forget their fallen comrades. They wanted future generations to always remember the contributions of the AMED during the Great War. So they would put ads in popular medical and nursing journals, and they were soliciting contributions of a dollar each from medical department workers. And they got so much money they could make four of these. And so they put one at Carlisle Barracks in Pennsylvania. That's where the Army's Medical Field Service School was at the time. They also, Walter Reed Army Medical Center, Letterman Army Hospital, San Francisco, California, Fitzsimmons Army Hospital, who was named for Lieutenant William Fitzsimmons, who's the first Army doctor and first American officer killed in World War I in Denver, Colorado. So if you ever want to see, it's a large plaque it, in person. We've got that right here. And the next two pictures are photos of sheet music. It's as artistic as the Red Cross posters. And you heard these songs coming in. This was I Don't Want to Get Well. It's because he's in love with his beautiful nurse. She feeds him. Um, she makes him feel oh so much better. And so he does not want to get well. And the next slide shows the angel God sent from heaven. And again, this is a soldier's mother. She's concerned about her son's safety, but she doesn't worry because God sent a shining angel to take her place wearing a red cross on her arm. So we've made copies of those lyrics for you in the back. And that is the end. If you have any questions, we are, we being Anne Marie and I, if you want to ask a 1917 question, <laughs> are happy to answer them. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To learn more about the Army Medical Department Center of History and Heritage and find education support for soldiers, military, civilians, teachers, researchers, and the general public, please visit our website at history.amed.army.mil. The U.S. Army Medical Department Museum is free and open to the public Monday through Saturday, 10 to 4. Remember to bring a valid ID to the Fort Sam Houston Scott Visitor Center at Harry Worsbach Gate, south of the Fort Sam Houston Golf Course on Harry Worsbach Road. If you have any questions, please call the AMED Museum at 210-221-6358 or visit the Joint Base San Antonio website for current base entry requirements at jbsa.mil.